Good morning. We'll talk, Bill, later, okay? Well, today we're talking about hope. And about a month ago, I was at my wife's school. She's a principal, and my daughter attends there. And my daughter forgot, to think, a book at home. And so uh, my wife called me and said, hey, could you bring this book up to the office? And so I went home and got it and brought it to the office. And as I was walking out of the office, out there in the hallway was a, a class of kindergartners, five-year-olds. And I think they just finished their bathroom break, and the uh, girls had all lined up, and they were walking down to their class. And then here were the boys, and they started walking down to the class. And one of the boys just stopped, and he just kind of sized me up. And when he finally got to the top of me, he said, wow. And I didn't really know what to say. So I just kind of looked at him, and he said, nice hair. And he just kept on walking. And I said, yeah, thank you very much. Everyone heeds a, a five-year-old to randomly come up to you and just give you a compliment. My hope went up that day. I walked out of that school saying, I've got nice hair. In fact, at 47, I'm happy I just have hair. You know? And so then this week, I was uh, talking to my daughter. And I teach over in the kids' church on Sunday. And uh, she said, so, Dad, you're, you're preaching today in the sanctuary. So who's going to be over in the kids' church? I said, well, Kim Barron's is going to be filling in, for me, filling in for me. She'll be there instead of me. And she went, yes, and just walked away. And the hope meter kind of went down. For those of you with kids, especially teenagers, you'll appreciate Mark Twain's quote. Uh, when the child turns 13, you put them in a barrel with a hole in it. When they turn 18, you plug the hole. All right. Now, that's just a joke. I love all three of my children. I would only put one of them in a barrel. And uh, I'll let you guys figure out which one. Well, I hope you guys had a good Christmas. Uh, my daughter wanted a white Christmas, and it was my favorite kind where there was snow on the grass but not snow on the road. And so Christmas Day, we got up and we opened some presents, and they went over to my sister's house, and uh, we, we hung out and had some food, played some board games, and we watched uh, the movie A Christmas Carol, and there's different versions of it, and we watched uh, the 1999 version with uh, Patrick Stewart, plays Ebenezer Scrooge, and of course, you know, he's, uh, he's very mean. He's very selfish. He's uh, mean to his employee. Uh, he doesn't really get along with his family, his nephew, and he's kind of mean to the community. He doesn't really share. And while everybody knows he's successful, they really don't want to be around him. And of course, that evening when he goes to bed, he's visited uh, by the ghost of Christmas past. And Christmas past takes him back to when he was a young man and choices that he could have made to live a life of generosity and love, but he chose not to do that. He wanted to be selfish. He was all about him. And, and you can see, as it's being revealed to him, hope kind of begins to go down. And then he's visited by the ghost of Christmas present. And the ghost of Christmas present shows him all the different people in his life who he could make a positive impact in their life to help them, but he chooses not to do so because he's selfish. And that those people are going to meet bad ends unless he intervenes. And you can see that, that hope even diminishes further. And then finally, he's visited by Christmas Future, and he is taken to a cemetery, and there's the gravestone, and it's got his name on it. He's passed away. And he's shown a vision of some of the businessmen that he used to hang out with when he was alive. And they're talking about him and say, oh, did you hear that he passed away? No one's going to go to his funeral, and we don't want to go to his funeral either. And then the next vision he sees is there's some servants that used to work in his house, and after he died, they stole things from his house to sell them, to pawn them off. And he realizes that he's made such a horrible impact in this world. 
And then the ground opens up and he can see the corpse of himself and he falls in. And at that point, he's lost all hope. And then the very next scene, he's awake. He's in his bed. He realizes it was a dream. And he starts to make this sound and it sounds like he's having a heart attack, but actually it's laughter. He's never really laughed like that before. It's like a a belly full of laughter and he's filled with hope at that moment. That's what we're going to talk about today, hope, this invisible quality uh, that we, we can't see it, of course, but it's there and we need it. There's a guy by the name of Major Harold Kushner who was a POW in Vietnam, and he talks about the devastating effect of hopelessness on human beings. He describes one 24-year-old Marine who was a POW in Vietnam, and this Marine decided to cooperate with the Viet Cong who had captured him. He said, if you promise to let me go, I will do whatever I can to cooperate. And they said, great, it's a deal. So he did everything to cooperate. He was a model prisoner. He was even a leader of the camp's thought reform group. But after a while, it became clear to him that they were lying to him. They were not going to let him go. And when the realization took hold, this is how Major Kushner described what happened to him. He said, this Marine became a zombie. He refused to do any work, and he rejected all offers of food and encouragement. He simply lay in his cot, sucking his thumb. In a matter of weeks, he was dead. I would guess there's one word for the cause of the death of that young Marine. It would be hopelessness. In fact, doctors in World War II and Korea and Vietnam said some prisoners died from the condition of what they called give up itis. And what they meant by that is the prisoners faced grim conditions with no prospects of freedom. Some became demoralized. Some became mired in despair, and after a while they became apathetic and refused food or drink and would spend their time in their bunks staring into space. With their hope drained away, these prisoners eventually wasted away and died. They died of give-up-itis. The human spirit needs hope to survive and thrive. One expert said, Since the early years as a physician, I learned that taking away hope for most people, like pronouncing a death sentence. And the writers of the Bible recognized this more than 2,500 years ago. This is what King Solomon wrote in Proverbs 13, 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. I love how one translator turned this into a very pithy phrase. He said, when hope is crushed, the heart is crushed. It is not surprising that if God created human beings with this craving for hope, that he would also serve as our ultimate hope. In fact, in Romans 15, 13, it describes God as the God of hope. All total, there are 95 references to hope in the Old Testament. There are another 85 references in the New Testament. This theme of hope is woven all throughout Scripture, and it's our theme this morning as we're getting ready to enter a new year. It's a very timely topic. George Gallup, the public opinion pollster, said people in many nations seem to be searching with new intensity for spiritual mooring these days. Why is that? One of the key factors prompting this surge is the need for hope in these troubled times. And the good news is that the God of the Bible is that source of hope. God offers a hope that is so powerful that it can transform a person's life and rewrite their eternity. It's not the kind of hope that we normally think of when we use the word hope. In everyday conversations, we use the word hope in various different ways. And that, they're really not consistent to what the Bible refers to when it's talking about hope. In fact, we have three poor substitutes for hope that I want to talk about this morning. The first one 
is wishful thinking. Wishful thinking is that kind of hopeful feeling that somehow, someway, things are going to go the way we want them to, even though we have absolutely no power over the situation. Now, you may not know this about me, but I cannot stand the New England Patriots as a football team. All right? Well, that's good for you, but one of the guys running my screen is a Patriots fan, so uh, I've got to keep it, I gotta be careful here what he does. Um, they win a lot. Tom Brady is uh, clearly a Hall of Fame quarterback. He might be one of the top five quarterbacks in, in all of NFL uh, history. Um, last year in the Super Bowl, though, when they were playing, I wanted them to lose. And not just by a little. I wanted them to be humiliated, just beaten down. And so midway through the third quarter, Atlanta has this huge lead. And wishful thinking entered in. I was like, yes, Atlanta's going to win. New England's going to lose. And I'm going to brag about it. And Brett McCarty, he's not here this morning. He's a huge Patriots fan. I'm going to let him know that they lost. And then the fourth quarter happened. And uh, it went all downhill for the Falcons, uphill for the Patriots. And they ended up winning. And that's what wishful thinking does to us. See, I wasn't on the field. I couldn't make an impact I was just sitting there watching the game like you were, and I'm hoping, wishfully thinking that these things happen, but I have no control over them. Sometimes that's what we do. We get caught up in wishful thinking. Now, wishful thinking can make us feel better. Sometimes, though, it convinces us of something that's not even there. The second one is blind optimism. It's good to be optimistic, but some optimists see everything through rose-colored glasses. Everything. They paper over their problems as if they did not exist. They avert their eyes from the ugliness of the world. To them, everything is just fine all the time. How many of you have ever seen the show Hoarders? Has anybody ever watched Hoarders? It's a frightening show to watch. It really is. Now, look, if you can't park your cars in your garage because you've got so much stuff in your garage, you're not a hoarder, okay? Don't feel bad because there's somebody like, oh, man, where's he going with this? No, I'm not talking about you. The hoarders, when you see the show, they have a little bitty path in their house. From their living room to the kitchen to the bathroom. Because the rest of the house is filled with stuff. You say, what about their bedrooms? There's so much stuff in their bedrooms, they've hauled the mattress out into the living room. And then you go into the basement, and it's just filled with trash. I mean, actual trash in the garbage bags. They won't take it out to the sidewalk. They just leave it there. And normally some relative has to be called. And why is that? Because these people who are hoarders have on rose-colored glasses. They're blind optimists. They look at everything in their house as being of awesome value. And when a group comes in and they look at the house, they have, sometimes they have like hazmat suits coming in. It's scary. And, and what they do with the person who lives in the house, they give them this little bitty pile and say, now listen, the stuff that has really sentimental value here and the three dumpsters we bought, that's for everything else. And they'll be coming out with, with a, a junk piece of trash that you and I would immediately throw away. And these people are like throwing their bodies over it. They're like, no, you can't take this away. I'm like, what is going on? Clearly there's, there's something wrong there, but, it, but it's a blind optimism. Sometimes we get caught in that. In fact, you can fly, find that blind optimism affects religion as well. Christian scientists, for instance, say that all evil is ultimately just an illusion. It is not real, we're just imagining it. Sort of like the sign on the bulletin board at the grocery store. Lost. Dog with three legs, blind in left eye, missing, right ear and tail broken, answers by the name of Lucky. You can call that dog Lucky all you want. It's not a lucky dog. 
And sometimes people in their blind optimism will pretend things are great when they are not. And the last one is our ambitious dreams. Now, ambitious dreams are good things, especially if we follow through. And this happens sometimes. Someone says, man, I, I want to eat right and exercise. And, and you see them over several months lose weight. And you're like, that's exciting. Or someone says, I want to go back to school and get a degree or a second degree. And you talk to them later and they're finishing up their semester or their year. And they're getting it and you're, you're excited. Or maybe someone says, I want to get a new job. And they send out the resumes and they do the interviews and they get the new job. And they have these ambitious dreams of what they want to do. And they follow through. The challenge with ambitious dreams is that often we are restricted by our own limitations or by things that are outside of our control. Last time I was up here in July, I was talking to you about training for a marathon, a half marathon. It's going to take place in October, third week in October. Man, I'm training. Things are going great. End of September, early October, I got plantar fasciitis in my left foot. Just too painful to run. Been to the doctor, did all that, but I couldn't do uh, the half marathon. Five months of training basically just down the drain because of my own limitations, because of the health of my foot. Now, my foot's getting better, but not quite back up to speed where I could run again. And so sometimes we're affected by those things. Other times, we're affected by things, our ambitious dreams, by things outside of our control. For example, work might be going great for you. And maybe you got a promotion, and you really enjoy where you work, and then one day you go into work, and there's an email that's been sent out that in your department, they're cutting back, they're downsizing, and you just lost your job. And there's nothing you can do about it. Things were going great from your perspective in your job, but someone else who has control said, no longer are you working here. Now let me contrast wishful thinking, blind optimism, ambitious dreams with biblical hope. Here's how the author and pastor Lee Strobel describes hope. For most people, hoping is something that they do, but the Bible talks about hope as something we can have. Hope is the confident expectation that God is willing and able to fulfill the promises that he has made to you. See the difference? Hope is something you can have. You can possess it. You can own it. You can grab a hold of it. The Bible refers to this as a living hope because it's always directly linked to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Through his resurrection, Jesus Christ demonstrated once and for all, beyond any doubt, that he is the God, and that he really does possess the power to fulfill the promises he makes to you and me. Promises that he will change us, that he will guide us, that he will walk beside us through the turbulence of life. Promises that he can cause good to emerge from the problems we face. And of course, the promise that he will grant us eternal life in heaven with him. The resurrection is an actual physical event in history that sealed Christianity as being the God who loves us and who is committed to helping us. Hebrews 6.19 says this, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Our hope is only as good as what it's anchored to, what it's attached to. Hope in and of itself has no power. You can wish for something. You can even hope for something. You might feel a little bit better about it. We might fool ourselves into thinking everything is okay. But the only hope that has any real power is the hope that is anchored to God. Those who follow Jesus Christ hope in the confident expectation that God is willing and able to fulfill the promises that he made to them. In the time remaining, I want to share with you two reasons why Christians have hope. 
But the first one is that we have hope because we're absolved of our past. I really like how it said in Lamentations 3.21, This I call to mind and therefore I have hope because of the Lord's great love. We are not consumed for His compassions never fail. It goes on to say they are new every morning. What the writer is saying is that we can live with hope as followers of Jesus Christ. Because even though we may fail God, and we all do, and even though we may fail our children in some way, which we all do, and maybe even though we may fail our spouse in some ways, which we all do, even so God's compassion, His forgiveness, His absolution for those wrongs we've done in our past, it's a renewable source. It is never exhausted. It is fresh, and it is available every single day. How many of you have seen the movie City Slickers? It's been a long time. Three guys from New York go out west to drive cattle. Billy Crystal's kind of the star. And uh, they're out on the trail, and one night they're in a tent, and they've been drinking a little bit. And one of the guys starts to cry. Actor uh, Harold Stern plays this role. And the other two guys are saying, well, you know, what, what's wrong? Why are you crying? He says, well, you know, just before we came on this trip, um, my wife found out that I, I was having an affair, and I'm pretty sure we're heading toward divorce, and, and I'm not sure I'm going to see my children ever again. And my wife's father is also my boss, so I'm probably, probably out of a job. And he's like, I'm 40 years old, and I've just kind of wasted my life. And his two friends are trying to encourage him. I say, you remember when we were kids, and we, we, we'd hit a baseball in the tree to get stuck, and we'd say, do over. He says, you know what? Even though you're at this point in your life, you, you get a do-over. But the question comes to mind, where is this guy whose life is a mess going to get a do-over? Where is he going to get a fresh slate if not from Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is in the do-over business. That's his job. That's his ministry. That's his mission to give a do-over to people like that and people like us. Sometimes people need a do-over from God because of guilt. Like you squeeze the toothpaste out of a tube Guilt has squeezed hope out of your life. Maybe that's how you feel this morning. Maybe you have some guilt about your marriage. Or maybe the way you've raised your kids, handled your finances. Maybe you've made poor decisions and choices when it comes to your health. Isn't this the day before the new year, the perfect time to ask God for a do-over? Don't lug that guilt around for another 365 days. God's mercies are fresh every day. In fact, 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, He will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The question is, are you willing to confess? Or maybe for you, it's just the opposite. You've had a successful life and many accomplishments. But realize that your relationship with Jesus has been in cruise mode. And you're just going along. You've kind of got Him at arm's length. You show up on Sunday and, and do your thing, and then the rest of the week, you know, you're out. And you find that your hope is in your success and finances instead of God. And maybe, just maybe, 1 Timothy 6.17 is true of you. And here it is, it says, Command those who are rich with the things of this world not to be proud. Tell them to hope in God, not in their uncertain riches. God richly gives us everything to enjoy. So whether it's guilt or going along, God wants to remind you that He is the God of do-overs. Your past does not have to define your future. I'll say that again. Your past does not have to define your future. We have a great hope because we can be absolved of our past. And the second reason we have hope is because we are assured of our future. You see, the thing with wishful thinking, blind optimism, ambitious dreams, is they can't 
be death. But our hope in eternal life goes beyond death. Last week, my wife was scrolling through Facebook, and I heard her gasp a little bit, and I I said, what's wrong? And we found out that uh, a friend of ours had passed away. Uh, Suddenly, they didn't have an illness. And when I asked who it was, and she said, this gentleman, I was uh, taken aback even more because I I grew up in the neighborhood uh, with this man, and I I spent time with his son. His son and I are about the same age. And so I went to the visitation, and I saw his wife, and I saw his son. And certainly they were sad that the husband and father had passed away. But they weren't totally grief-stricken because the husband and the father, he was a believer. And they were believers. They said, you know, he, he's in a better place now. He really is. And, and one day, we're going to join him there. As I was talking to them, I said, you know, our faith sustains us. And they said, that's right. And that faith is that hope that we have that death is not the end that goes on after this eternal life with Christ. How we face death says a whole lot about how we face life. When you're assured of a future and eternity with God, then you have a sense of confidence and boldness and courage in this world. It turns us from hopelessness to hope. One of my favorite movies of all time is Return of the King from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And the reason it is is when I was 12 or 13... Uh, my mom gave me a book to read, and for me at that time, I thought it was a grown-up book, and she gave me the book The Hobbit. I said, I think you'll like this. I didn't just like The Hobbit. I loved it. I read that book so fast. Two days, I was done. And, she, and I said to her, I said, are there any more? She said, oh, well, yeah, he's got a whole trilogy. I was like, bring it on. And so, uh, man, Fellowship of the Rings, Two Towers, Return of the King. Over the next six or seven years, I probably read that trilogy like five times. I just loved it. And then when they came out with the movies, I was like super excited. And so in 2001, they came out with the first one, then 2002, the second one, and finally Return of the King in 2003. And near the end of the movie, the uh, evil Lord Sauron has unleashed his legions of orcs and trolls and all kinds of ungodly creatures on the city Minas Tirith. And the men are trying to defend the city, but it's not going well. And and they break through uh, the outer wall. And the city is kind of built in rings on the side of this mountain. So the people retreat to the second ring, and they break through that, and to the third ring, and so on. And finally, they're at kind of the last gate, the last door, before they break through near the palace. And there's Gandalf the wizard and Pippin, one of the hobbits, sitting there. And Pippin is filled with fear, because he knows at any moment... These orcs are going to break through that gate and going to kill everybody there. And Pippin says, I didn't know this is how it's going to end. And Gandalf says, this is not the end. No, death is just the beginning into a new life. A new life. And, and, and it describes, you know, white shores and blue skies and green meadows that go on forever. And Pippin kind of smiles a little bit. And he said, that, that's not so bad. And Gandalf says, no, it isn't. Even in the darkest moment of despair where death was knocking on the door literally, Pippin was filled with hope because of eternal life. And eternal life is waiting for those who have decided to follow Jesus. Titus 3, 4-7 says it this way. Can you go back one screen, please? Thank you. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior was shown, He saved us because of His mercy. It was not because of good deeds 
we did to be right with him. He saved us through the washing that made us new people, through the Holy Spirit. God poured out richly upon us that Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Being made right with God by his grace, we could have the hope of receiving the life that never ends. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. The band will come out and do a closing song. And this is your morning to respond. Don't let guilt or just going along fill this next year for you. But be changed by the power of God. Whether it's in the quietness of your seat uh, this morning in your heart right there, or there's prayer teams up front, if you've been struggling with guilt this last year, and God's tapping on your shoulder and says, you know, today's the day. You need to release it to me. Whatever sin you've committed, he has the power to forgive it. Or maybe God's tapping on your shoulder today and you realize 2017, God was on the back burner. And God's saying, don't let 2018 put me on the back burner. I want to be part of your life. Whatever it is, I just encourage you to pray today, either at your seat or at the prayer teams uh, down front, to see God fill you with his power and fill us with his hope. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus Christ, his death, and more so his resurrection. I thank you that you give us life. And God, I ask that you would fill us with hope this morning, the hope of eternal life for those who are followers of Jesus. And I pray that you would draw all of us to want to follow you, to draw on close to you. Help us to confess those areas in our life that are keeping us from you, O oh God. And bring us back to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.